This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Engineering Quality Control Podcast, a podcast focused on helping engineering professionals ensure their projects are of the highest quality. The goal of the show is to provide strategies and concepts to help ensure that you can address quality control on all of your projects. I'm your host, Brian Wagner, a licensed professional engineer, and in this episode of the Engineering Quality Control Podcast, I'll be talking with Andy Bennett, the Regional Vice President at Pannoni Associates, about quality control on their projects, how they're standardizing things and working across many offices to have consistency. We also dive into a little bit of stormwater and our experience in how standardizing things can be a benefit. So let's jump right in. So now I'd like to welcome to our show the guest for today, Andy Bennett, Regional Vice President at Pannoni Associates. Andy, welcome to the Engineering Quality Control Podcast. Thank you for having me. Could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and maybe what you do on a daily basis for Pannoni? Pannoni is a multidiscipline firm. We have a lot of different uh, skill sets. I'm a civil engineer by degree. I'm a land development engineer by practice. I oversee the business operations in nine offices in what we call Greater Pennsylvania, which is essentially outside of Philly Metro. So I oversee offices that stretch from Bethlehem on the east side up until Wilkes-Barre Strand all the way over to Pittsburgh. And I manage those businesses. You said nine offices? Nine offices. How many employees is that roughly? We have an interesting hybrid model splits us up, but I say the population in those offices is probably about 200 people. Some of them are maybe about half of that is my direct reports. The other half I have kind of an indirect relationship with because they're discipline based in some ways, but that's generally what the population is. And some of those offices are more than we will have in the future because we had some recent uh, mergers where these came with offices and over time, five, 10 years, we'll merge the operation together. So it'll probably get down to more like five, six, seven, somewhere in that range. Where you can cover geographic. I imagine you're probably duplicating some geographical areas then, different offices. Correct. That would play into a little bit of the quality of the work as you make acquisitions and you bring people online that may have been familiar with a different standard or a different expectation. And I know that's part of the acquisition process is getting to know those key individuals and those the purpose for hiring or buying out somebody. That brings with its own kind of unique challenges, doesn't it? It does. I mean, the acquisitions that we've experienced in my region recently have been, I'm going to say, smaller, 20 to 30 person or firms, and they have their own way of doing things. We're a larger firm, we're 1,200 people, so we have a more standardized way of doing things and trying to get them to integrate in successfully without wasting a lot of their time, having them be frustrated over new processes is an interesting exercise. 
but I think we've been pretty successful in, in doing it. And we're always not afraid to change either. So if somebody shows us a better way, we're not afraid to adopt some of their aspects also, and they know it. So that gives them some ownership, some buy-in, some agency. But we do have ways that we do things. And that, and generally, you know, like a small entity, they have the way that they do things. So getting those things to match up is an interesting proposition. Right. And we talk about that a lot. I've talked about this with other guests that I'm in the land development realm as well. So there's no good even PE test really for that because it's so diverse. Sometimes I feel like there's the transportation aspect, there's the water resources aspect, you have the geotechnical aspect, like there's so many different things that come with land development and that's any engineering. And with that comes experience and ideas and those, I don't want to say set in your ways, but if you've been only taught one certain way, it's kind of hard to change that if you don't understand how it could be easier or maybe it's harder. And I think it's great that you're willing to make those changes that maybe just your way isn't always the set in stone way, right? You need a way, but I always say like any of these practices, and I'm big on standardizing things, but they are always living and breathing processes. And we should always be looking for continuous improvement. So if someone shows us something better, we'd be silly not to adopt it. That said, as you know, what being an engineer, the engineers by and large are pretty confident that their way is better than your way. So there's some of that people management that has to occur too. I did search and rescue training with my dog for about 10 years. And the one thing that we always, the running joke with dog trainers was the only thing two dog trainers would agree on was what the third dog trainer was doing wrong. There have been times in my career where it's the same thing. The only thing that two engineers sometimes will agree on is what the third engineer didn't do right. What I tell people is that there is more than one right way. That said, there are wrong ways. There are things that that are absolutely wrong and we shouldn't do those. But there is generally in life more than one right way. We're just going to pick the way that works best for most people. It goes back to learning styles, even that some people are visual, some people have to do it to understand it. And other people can just read it and be like, oh, I got it. Being able to be accustomed and, and make those changes is a commendment to you and Pannoni and, and it's something that we all need to embrace. The only constant in life is change. So we need to understand that things are going to change and we need to adapt with them. I remember my first company was a large international firm. It's like 2,500 people. And they were very rigid in a lot of ways. And I don't mean it in a bad way, but they would tell you whether stormwater was one word or two words. And at first, I really frustrated me. I mean, I came out of Lehigh with my master's, all gung-ho with myself. And, uh, and I'm like, why do they have to mandate this or that? But what I realized and why I believe in standardization so much is that it freed me to think about what I should be thinking about. I shouldn't be worrying about whether it's one word or two words. I should be focused on the design and creativity that's required to do, perform my job correctly. We, especially in my region, like to standardize things because I think it frees us to think about what we need to think about and not trying to reinvent a process or adapt somebody else's process as, as because we're forced to or anything else. You know what you got to do, and then you try to spend your energy wisely. I think that's a great takeaway for our listeners that that's one of the ultimate benefits of standardizing things. It, it allows you to not have to think about what is standardized, right? Right. You're responsible for a lot of client service and business development across the various offices. And we focus on like engineering quality control and producing that best product at the end. But how do you manage quality control maybe across those offices? And how do you focus on that end product being consistent, even though there's many, many jurisdictions and many, many different clients? 
do you have any technology or any things that you're doing to try to standardize those quality items? Well, one of the things that we did from a proposal standpoint and a report standpoint is we standardized a multidisciplinary proposal because as you, as you kind of alluded to, when you're in land development, you kind of tend to be the umbrella. You're not only doing your particular aspect of the job, but you have survey involved, you can have transportation involved, you can have geotech involved. And we want to have one proposal where all these entities have their base language in there. So again, they're not reinventing the wheel. It's much more, it's a very large document. I think it's about 35 pages. It's more about taking things out than trying to think of things you might've forgotten to put things in. We have that standardized and then it all looks the same. You know, from each discipline, as they put their, give us their input, it all looks the same. We have a limited service agreement, which we use as almost like a PO kind of document. It's a one page up to about $15,000. You should be able to describe the scope in bullets. There should be no ambiguity. It should be really clear. We're going to set five pins on this property, that kind of thing. It's usually one discipline. And then we attach terms and conditions and fees and stuff. But it's, it's a very clean way to get uh, information to a client. And then we have a process and we have reports that look the same. So it doesn't really matter, at least formatting wise, it doesn't really matter what discipline is creating the report. They should look and feel like a Pannonia report. On top of that, we have software that we use to track projects that give us same information. I'm heavily involved in the, that side of project management for our company. We're in the process of creating what we call dashboards for the product that we have that will give people information in a very efficient, timely manner. So I always want people to be able to get in, get out, don't create your own reports, don't need to do this, don't need to do that. You can see where you are, get the information and make decisions accordingly. You're really benefiting from the number of employees you have because you have all those different perspectives over the years. You've added, and I'm sure that document continues to change as well. The listeners that may be working for that small five or 10 person firm may not have those privileges and it becomes this save as, or that's the way we did it on this job. So let's take that and pull from it. You have any cautions or any ideas? You always go back to that first document. You should always go back to the template. And I have been in that. I've, you know, My last firm before that, I've been here for 17 years, but my firm before that was 10. There were times where I pull up an old proposal and I just cringed as I read it. <laughs> I saw the errors in it. And I created a standardized proposal template for that reason there. And so I kind of carried that with me to this organization. I had the most current language. I had the most current fees. I had the most current costs. And if you set it up right, you can, like in land development, we talk about the municipality a lot or the county. You can just have municipality and word search and replace with the right municipality. Because there's nothing worse than looking at a footer or a header or seeing that you had the wrong municipality for a proposal that you were doing. You know, It's all about efficiency and error reduction. So if we start with the right information and we don't steal from the last one, it tends to go better, at least in my belief. We're shooting for perfection as engineers. We want to be perfect. That rarely is accomplished. It's just where are those errors and how detrimental are they to the system or to the project or to the situation? I received an RFI today on a project I was working on to confirm an invert because the plan is clear, but somebody's questioning it. Is it right? I hope so. If it's wrong, we have the opportunity to fix it. And maybe they're asking because they know it's not quite what it should be. I'm not sure yet. I have to dive into that tomorrow. Like I said, we're shooting for perfection. We all want to be perfect. Like you said, most engineers have that personality. They want to be right. So it's sometimes hard to combat that or deal with that and accept that. So as the vice president of many offices, your focus is business development, 
And obviously there with that goes reputation. Even though I don't think I've ever, I feel like I've touched some Pannoni work from time to time in my career, or either picked it up or seen stuff go to it or seen it. With that name comes a reputation. So what systems maybe have you implemented for, and you've touched on some of them as far as the proposal and the reports, but is there anything as far as maybe CAD standards or expectations? Have you flushed things out across your entire company or is it more localized to clients and situations? It's a little of both. We do have CAD standards. We've adopted uh, some kind of national uniform CAD. My days of CAD are long since gone. My graduate career was paid for by teaching manual drafting. Was kind of dating myself. I was right on the cusp of when AutoCAD Lite came out. There was a time where I could do it, but that time is long since gone. But we have a standardized process. We have someone for the company that leads what that standard looks like, and he has regular meetings, and we try to educate people and get them to uh, adapt to things. And if we see something that's better, then we'll adjust, especially as we bring on some of these other firms, and maybe they have a different way of doing it that might make some sense. So we have some standards like that. And then, as you know, I assume... Uh, well, I'm not sure what state you're in, but if you're in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is very Pennsylvania specific and even more regionalized into kind of the counties or the DP regions or whatnot. I've never had a license in Jersey, even though where my home base is, is not far from Jersey because the rules are different. The, you go through the approval process, it's different. The calculations may be similar, but the rules are different. And even now, as stormwater grows from state to state or changes from state to state, it's not necessarily exactly the same. So we have then standards that are kind of more localized or state-based. We have a group, and my expertise or, or forte or passion is stormwater. So we have a group actually of just Pennsylvania stormwater people. They get together regularly and talk about different ways to solve a problem, what the DEP is saying in their region, you know, what's the best practice, making sure that the reports that come out of Westchester look like the reports that are coming out of Penn State you know, or State College. We have a lot of that kind of interaction with people that seem motivated to be on the same page. And, and I think we've always had a, an entrepreneurial spirit, but we also have a spirit of learning in this company that I think uh, is, you know, when you get these people together, they're excited to learn from each other. So that helps. That's great to hear that. Know that you're taking and making that investment into the staff and into sharing those ideas because it only benefits your clients. So it only benefits your reputation. It only benefits the ease of getting things approved or having those examples and having those relationships. When I worked for a big company for a little while and it was really fun sometimes to get a phone call from somebody in a different office because they're just brainstorming. They're just like, hey, have you ran into this before in any of your jurisdictions? Because I'm in Maryland where stormwater is a challenge at times in Maryland. I've said, and I imagine most of the municipalities and things, especially in the land development realm, where I don't think I could ever take a stormwater plan from one jurisdiction, submit it to another jurisdiction and get it approved on my first try. I just feel like that's almost impossible because everybody has different notes or different expectations or different clarifications like that. The water quality calculations are different. I don't know how Maryland is. Pennsylvania is municipality-based. So you got 2,500 municipalities and all of them have their own tweak on rules. And a long time ago, probably 18 years ago or so, I was part of a Pennsylvania housing research committee that was had like the governor's action committee tied to it. And we looked at a bunch of the saldos, the subdivision land development ordinances across the state, trying to find similarities or, or and eventually come up with a guiding document to help people. And what we realized is this just a bunch of lay people making it up. So the rules are just so bizarre. 
And then you add in the layer of the DEP and the, some conservation districts, like so we go DEP and then under that at the county level, they have a county conservation district. And some county conservation districts will let you use this solution, but other county conservation districts won't. And so there's consistency, but then there's some peculiarities or idiosyncrasies that you just have to be aware of. And if you don't do it on a regular basis in that particular area, it's a struggle. And we'll have people that'll help out in a project, say from, we've had it plenty of times, like in my area, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Northampton, Lehigh County, we'll have somebody come from another office and start to perform land development stuff. And I'm like, you got to let us review it before you submit it, because you got to know, because we know the quirks. It's a funny world like that. You can standardize a lot of stuff, but then you got to know all the little ins and outs and, and idiosyncrasies. I mean, that person coming in to do that or help you from another office, it can be very beneficial because it's a new perspective. But if you can't get it approved, there's some give and take there. And the geography of the state is so diverse. You know, I mean, we have in the Lehigh Valley, it's in the valley itself, it's heavy limestone. It's a lot of karst terrain. It's a lot of sinkholes. And then you get up into the hills and it's more shale and maybe some glaciated rock. You get up towards Wilkes-Barre's Grand, mines everywhere because so much coal came out of that area. You really do need to know what's underneath the ground in those areas because there's a lot of pockets and tunnels and stuff like that. And you go out to uh, Pittsburgh and it's a whole other world of geology out there with slip, slipping of soils and all kinds of other stuff that occurs. So it's, you got to know enough to know that you don't know something too. Know enough to stop yourself and ask a question. When I review plans and I'm working with other engineers and other people in my office, it's like understand asking questions is more than just the technical error. So yeah, two plus two should always equal four, but it's more, did you think about this? Did you rule this out? This isn't how we typically show it. So where'd you get this idea from? That kind of situation. The one thing that does concern me is CAD or other software. Because I always say like, it's only as good as the person that coded it. So there's a software now that is heavily used and in its infancy at my last firm, I got it because it wasn't expensive. And I asked so many questions, they let me start beta testing it. And I found major flaws in it. And it was not that they weren't good engineers or scientists. There were just things in there because they were based in like a coastal plain of Georgia. That's the way they did things. And it's different than way that we need to do an analysis in Pennsylvania. And so they didn't contemplate like inlet control. I thought the thing was functioning the way my background would indicate, you know, but it wasn't actually. And I've seen that also with at times with CAD and other things. And we saw it once with a structural calculation where it said the thing was fine, but a senior engineer looked at it and went, well, that doesn't make sense. It's only as good as the person that coded it. And we have so many people that just assume because the answer comes out of that machine that it's correct, that scares me. You have to have the ability to, like in any situation, look at go, does that number seem right? Is that in the ballpark? I teach a lot of, uh, I taught internally and externally stormwater. And that's one of the things I talk about. Like you do a time concentration calculation. I say it's 19 minutes. You say it's 20 minutes. Well, both answers could be right. Like it's not a perfect thing, but 33 minutes, that's wrong. Seven minutes, that's wrong. You know what I mean? Like it's, does that answer seem in the ballpark of reality? And that's one of the things I hope that our younger engineers are, are able to continue learning, but I worry that technology takes that away. I've ran into that same situation myself where back when I learned TR-55, I learned it on worksheets. When I did a weighted CN, I knew that my number has to be between 98 and 60. When you get a number that's not that, it's wrong. Whether you did it right or not, it's wrong. Understanding and recognizing that of what the expectation is. I went through in the company I worked for, we standardized a lot of Excel sheets and worksheets for stormwater calculations. 
And we continue to update them. We continue to tweak them in part because the reviewers are asking for different things than they did two or three years ago. But there's a new scenario. There's a new situation where our standard didn't quite fit and we have to rework it. And then there's a quality process to making sure that we're still doing it right. Because even the younger people or the less experienced people that are getting into stormwater, oh, I just need to plug in these three numbers and it tells me this. And they trust it like it's gold. I had a gentleman once, and I don't remember if I mentioned this on another episode or not, but he ran a TR-20 for a pond, for a stormwater pond, and he couldn't get the cues, the discharge rates to change. No matter how much volume, no matter how much he changed the riser. And he's like, can you look at this and see what I'm doing wrong? To me, as soon as I looked at it, it was obvious. He didn't have any drainage going to the structure, but he had spent like four or five hours just manipulating the structure, but the routing wasn't set up correctly. And he didn't know what was wrong, even though all the water surfaces were still the bottom of his pond in all the storms. And I'm like, that should be a clue. Here you go. Here's a clue. Where's the water? We had a long conversation about the logic that goes with that software and others. And he became a better person because of it. I hope that he won't have that same error in the future. Two things, though, with that, like now we're just stormwater dorking, but you know, one is the other thing that frustrates me in that aspect, it is to some degree in art science that these models, whether it's tier 55 or rational in some kind of modification, universal rational, whatever, we're doing things to them that they were not built to do, right? I mean, tier 55 was built to size farm ponds in the 1950s by Victor Marcus. There are limitations to the theory. And what frustrates me is the overuse of certain models or the incorrect use of certain models. And that occurs not only at the practitioner's level, but also at the regulatory level where they just don't understand the limitations of the model. And and I've had conversations with people at the regulatory level where you may have inadvertent or unintended consequences. It's not acting the way you think it's actually occurring. And the other thing that I always say to people, especially when I'm doing that kind of training, is the reason I can find your mistake so fast is because I've made it. The trick is not to make it again or to limit the number of times. I'm moving on to whole new mistakes, but I can find yours because I've done every dumb thing out there and been corrected on it and you learn from it and you become a better engineer for it. So you've been Pannoni for a while. You've progressed through a little bit of the leadership there. What advice might you have for somebody that is moving up the ranks? I mean, I know there was a big thing for me moving from a designer realm into a project management realm where... I was no longer just doing the work, but I was overseeing work and even as an engineer. But as you move through your career and how maybe have you moved through your career, what advice would you have for somebody working towards a level like you? I think it's a couple of things. One is I always talk to especially younger staff about your career as a continuum. If you're not happy doing something, you can't be afraid to adjust, especially when you're younger. It's so much easier to adjust. I started actually out doing environmental and geotech work. And had been forced by circumstances to make an adjustment and was successful in doing that. And I certainly didn't go to school to manage offices, right? So like, you know, you adjust, but it's a continuum. And in my first like 10 years, I would advise people to like, just be a sponge, learn everything you possibly can. And then in the next 10 years, in your thirties, maybe you're thinking about what you want to do. Do you want to be a technical expert? Do you want to really manage? Look, project management seems glorious. It can be a pain in the rear. So like, it can be hard and it's not made for everybody. And I call it sometimes a dark art. It's not for everybody. Sometimes some people are better suited being the person that solves the problem and knowing that. And then in your 40s and 50s, you're really developing into a career. But this is what you've chosen. And now you're trying to advance yourself. 
some extent, you have to have some patience and understand where you are. And a friend of mine, oh, what's the phrase he uses? Excel in role. This is the role you have right now. Excel in that role and you'll get other opportunities. I think I've done a lot of great things. I have an ego like anybody, especially probably at my level, but my whole goal is to make other people around me successful. I'm not worried about the direct credit. If I can make everybody else more successful, I'll be successful. I don't need to raise my hand and point out what I've done. If everybody else is, is humming along, doing great things, you will be successful. And the last little piece of advice as I'm rolling along, I would say is, is about opportunity. I tell people that opportunity requires two things. It requires the recognition of that opportunity. That is something a lot of people miss. They just didn't recognize the moment. And the other one is to be prepared for that opportunity, to take advantage of it. And if either of those things don't work, if you don't see it or you're not ready for it, you can't take advantage of it. So work hard to be ready, keep your eyes open, see when that opportunity comes. And if you want to take advantage of it, do it. I think that's all great advice. I, probably things that we all need to hear earlier in our career than there's sometimes the, the progression of you're an engineer, you're a junior designer, now you're a designer, now you got your license, now you're a project manager. Now you're a project engineer that's going to like save the world and, and you're going to be that person. And, and sometimes you just need to stop and recognize the value of that time and that experience and the, all those different scenarios. Like we were talking about stormwater, like stormwater, there's no two sites that are the same, but there's characteristics that you know. I was talking about it with one of the guys that I'm friends with, and we were talking about all the different things that I think about when somebody gives me a site. And even when I'm writing a proposal or when I'm thinking about a hundred different things, and you're th probably thinking about 80 of the same things, but you have another 20 that are completely different than what I'm thinking about based on your experience and your scenarios and your time. Even though we probably get to the same end result and the same goal, even you and I would get there very differently. Right. There's more than one right answer, more than one path to get there. Absolutely. What's the best way for somebody that would want to get in touch with you or learn more about what you and Pannoni are doing? Well, you can certainly contact me at, uh, at my email, which is abennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T, at pannoni.com. And Pannoni is the way it sounds. It's a phonetic, but it's Pennsylvania, like P-E-N-N-O-N-I.com. abennett at pannoni.com is probably the simplest way to do it. And be happy to talk to anybody. I like helping people. So I like talking about careers and things like that and things I've learned. I mean, the part of why I say like, I can find that mistake so fast. So if I can get you to learn it without having to make a mistake, that's even better. So admitting you made a mistake is a good thing. We all make mistakes. I always say that we learn more from failure than success. You got to fail a lot and then figure it out. Can't fail if you don't try is one of those phrases. Exactly. Very true. That's a good one. Thank you. I appreciate your time. I've enjoyed myself. Thank you. I appreciate it. Please remember that you can find the show notes for this episode at engineeringqualitycontrol.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points that we've discussed, as well as links to Andy's email and other things that we've talked about in this episode. Until next time, friends, I wish you the best in all of your engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.